Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest instalment of our Innovators on Innovators series. On this episode, Evolve Additive Solutions CEO Joe Allison is joined by Mike Luttrell, the founder of Build Parts and Paxis. Evolve Additive is a spin-out from Stratasys that is bringing to market a technology called Selective Thermoplastic Electrographic Process, while Paxis is the vehicle for a new photopolymerization method called Wave Applied Voxel. While the pair have common ground and working to introduce new AM processes to market, they have also spent many years running 3D printing service bureaus. Their discussion spans both of these themes, starting with their early experiences in the 3D printing industry, touching on the market value estimates of AM, before then diving deep into their respective step and wave technologies. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tstmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Hey Joe, good to uh, good to see you again. Yes, good to finally talk to you, um, where we can really sit and chat about things. Uh, it's like all the times that we've got to talk before, we're standing in front of a booth at a trade show or something like that. Um, it's good to have some quiet time where we can uh, learn more about our careers and what we did together. Yeah, I've actually, you know, it's funny when I, th- I think the first time I met you was at one of the rapid events when Solid Concepts had a booth there. And I, I just remember seeing this uh, huge maquette uh, of a action figure that I think you guys created. And I thought, wow, these, these guys are really killing it with this model. Uh, I, have to, I have to tell you some story behind that. Um, uh, so what that was about was we had uh, come up with this new build style for stereolithography and we, we called it ID light. And it was for doing big mock-up models like that which we used to CNC machine out of um, uh, modeling board. And um, uh, so, you know, it was just kind of an offshoot of quick cast, you know, quick cast was just too brittle. So now we just beefed it up and made it stronger, but it was so light that we had a small girl in marketing who could hold that up over her head by herself. I mean, it, it weighed like 20 pounds, but it was so strong that that same, uh, and then we named him Zoomer. He went to many a trade shows and you know how when you ship stuff to trade shows, they don't last but five, 10 trade shows and they're all busted up. This guy yeah. lasted, he lasted forever. Um, so they're very, they were very strong, very light. And um, he got the name Zoomer. I don't know. It was back when Iron Man was out. One of our customers um, uh, was Gentle Giant Studios, a company that specializes in uh, digital modeling. And so anyways, they, it was nice to give them some business and they put that together and they put together a comic book uh, series that would, uh, that we would send out to our customers and stuff with it um, as well. Um, But anyways, that was a full-size guy kind of tailored after Iron Man. 
Yeah, that that was, you know, when I first saw that, we had just started adding finishing as a service in our company. And we were doing general, you know, like pattern finishing with some color matching. And, you know, seeing that was inspiring for the way that we did trade models going forward. And, you know, going back to what you said about models lasting a certain period of time at trade shows, we, we had this P38 Lightning that we built with about a four foot wingspan. And I think I dragged that to about seven or 10 different shows. And the only show it ever got hurt in, destroyed in, was uh, a Chicago show, you know, our, our yeah. neck of the woods. And you back in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So out of curiosity, um, you, you had started with 3D systems, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so a little of my backstory was um, I got into CAD CAM. Uh, at a company called Unisys, and they had bought a, uh, a CAD CAM company called GraphTech. So I moved from one of their subsidiaries called Memorax and, uh, and went to work there because I you know, fell in love with CAD CAM. And that was back in the days when, I don't know if you remember, the big CAD CAM show was Autofact. And I think it was run by SME, but it doesn't matter. It was, uh, it's gone now. And, um, but... Uh, so I was at one of those shows and, you know, all the startups and stuff were downstairs. I think it was in Cobo Hall, big, huge, grandiose booths upstairs. And uh, somebody said, you got to go downstairs and see this thing. It's the equivalent of a 3D printer. And that was 3D systems down there in a little 10 by 10 booth. And they had an SLA one there. And yeah. I went down and I saw that. And that changed my life. Um, I called my head owner as soon as I got back and said, get me a job at that company. And he said, no, they have three openings. And in two weeks, he had me working at 3D Systems. Um, and um, anyways, there was so many ways to spin out and start a company from there uh, that uh, I, I, I spun out and started Solid Concepts with a couple of partners um, back then. Ray Bradford, a brilliant programmer. And Skyler Mitchell, just a natural born salesman, and me, the manufacturing guy. Um, and about 25 years after that, sold it to Stratasys and uh, worked for them a few years. And, you know, anyways, here's now where I am. Um, so that, that's kind of the short story of my backstory. We'll get uh, what, um, um, how did you get into this 3D printing stuff? Where's the first time you saw this? And uh, so, hey, by the way, I see that dinosaur in the background. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I, I, I was in the graphic design industry. In fact, um, I was I went to art school. And when I came out, I, I, I had kind of worked at CompUSA as a as a part time job while I was going to college. And I became their resident Macintosh expert. I got really into the whole computer uh, consulting side of business. And then I, at the same time, I was also into graphic design when it first translated over to digital. And, uh, I, I went to, when I came out of college, I had two, two possible offers. One was doing a full-time con computer consulting gig. And the other was, was freelance graphic design. And I really enjoyed the, the art side of it. So I went to the, and I liked being my own boss. So I wanted to do the graphic design side. And I was, working out of my house for about five years and my my father and I are both huge gadget geeks you know any possible gadget that came out we'd, we'd be the first to have it 
Well, he had sold his company to Thomas and Betts back in 97, and he owed them two years worth of consulting. And when he was down in the meeting, uh, one of the guys in the meeting said, hey, you know, you got to see this 3D printed part we got. Uh, just We just got back to do some design verification. And my dad's like, can I have that? He's like, yeah, sure. So he came back to Chicago and he handed me this model. And he said, Mike, this is what you should get into. And, you know, I, at the time, I was looking to get into possibly opening a 2D service bureau, which which would have been digital scanning and and uh, pre-proof pre uh, prints in full color. And I saw this and I immediately thought, wow, this is really incredible. And as I was doing research, I remember thinking to myself, wow, this industry has been around for 13 years. I'm kind of coming to it late. And, <laughs> mm. and so I went and bought a refurbished uh F FDM 1650. And I believe the sticker price on that thing new was like 120 grand. And when I picked it up, it was like 75, which was unheard of to me at the time for a piece of equipment that was essentially a printer. But uh, I did, I bought, I bought that FDM printer and, and brought it in. And I think at the time Stratasys might've had 50 employees. So it was a very, very small company to work with. And when comparing it to the other technologies like SLA and SLS, SOS, I really didn't know anything about, and SLA, I did know about, but the complexity of being a one-man shop, right? Setting up a, a, a build room and having a small machine in there and, and, and trying to do sales and marketing and the accounting and all the stuff uh, that, that kind of comes with owning a business. I realized that the FDM process at the time was perfect. You know, the, the post-processing was breaking away support structures and, and the machine was fairly slow. Uh, but at the same time, I was able to actually uh, kind of dive into it from that. Yeah, I remember those days, uh, one man shop, same thing. At least I had a sales guy and he was really good. Uh, the business was just pouring in, uh, but I had to do everything else. I had to quote the parts, um, build the parts, sand the parts, package the parts, uh, type up a packing slip, type type up the invoice and uh, um those were the days. I could, I, uh, it was great hiring those first couple employees. Um, yeah. To help out. Um, so you cut your teeth with FDM. And I did. Actually, you know, it's funny because most of the companies that I know, and you, you probably, it sounds like you guys did it the same way we did it too, which was uh, we weren't, you know, we were just parts for hire. It was a commodity at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. To us, we're competing service bureaus. Uh, you know, I think you've been in business since what, 92? Uh, 91. Yeah. 91. Yeah. So when I started in 98, uh, there were a number of service bureaus in the Chicagoland area. And, you know, SLA was considered in America the number one 3D printing process, uh, where FDM was still fairly unknown at the time. But it it really lent itself to me being able to do it all at one time. And when we brought our first employee in, you know, he he essentially just mirrored me, uh, Dan Williams, and and he it was probably another year or two when we had 15 machines that we finally got an office manager. <laughs> so my wife was kind of doing the books out of the house and, and I just brought this machine, these machines in and we started really expanding. 
we got our big boost because of Stratasys actually at the time they were advertising their service bureaus on the on on their website and with my website design background we had created a, a website we we I created the server for it we actually had a class C full IP license in our building I taught myself NT 4.0 so I could host it and uh, <laughs> so just as you said you know business was rolling in but we never we never had a salesman uh, we've never had a physical salesman in our office. Uh, we've had a couple of outside reps, but business rolled in pretty quickly. And I think within six months, we added our second FDM machine, which is like a, it was called an FDM 8000, which was 18 by 18 by 24. Mm-hmm. But what we found with uh, Stratasys and with with uh, 3D systems back then, or the SLA processes, the FDM was considerably slower. So when I had 15 machines, that was like the equivalence of three SLA machines back at the time. Yeah. And that's what it took if you were going to be in business. I remember um, we got into FDM. It was probably about our third uh, 3D printing technology. I I cut my teeth with the SLA because I came out of 3D systems. Definitely had a a, a competitive advantage having been a process development engineer uh, with the technology and being able to run it. We got into SLS next and... um, then we got into FDM and we looked at FDM and how slow it was and, you know, uh, figured we can't, we can't get into that business unless we start with four machines because that's equivalent to one. Um, and we didn't want to buy four machines. Finally, Stratasys came up with some uh, very creative financing scheme uh, where we'll put four machines there and you just, you just pay per hour when you're, they're running. And I said, okay. And that was it. It took off. Um you know, because it definitely has a, uh, a niche um, in the marketplace with the uh, amorphous thermoplastics. Um, yes. And yeah. uh, I'm just wondering, uh, though, I kind of know what markets we addressed early on with stereolithography and then with SLS. In the early uh, market development of FDM, what applications did you find that it fit best? and um, in, in what marketplaces? Well, our first, you know, when I got into the industry in 98, the, the three primary businesses in the industry were, you know, medical, um, automotive and aerospace. And our first, our, our first com- company that we worked with, oddly enough, was Thomas and & Betts and they never paid their bill. Uh, <laughs> they still owe me $700, but, uh, Medical became our first primary business model case. Uh, it, it was a company out in Pennsylvania that started ordering parts from us. And that actually drove us to get into the uh, 8,000 because they needed larger parts. Uh, they were doing air compressors for the medical device industry. And so having these large housings were imperative. And and that's where FDM shined. You know, Stratasys with their with their marketing at the time, claim that their parts were 75% the strength of an injection molded part, which we had to re-educate a lot of our clients because it was based on the, the Z strength that, that became problematic. But where FDM really shined, I always felt, was in large flat parts because SLS was very difficult to get large flat parts. SLA materials weren't as durable back then. And FDM produced very good repeatability as well. So uh, we had a lot of customers utilizing it for, uh, for, for various durability tests. 
And I think that, you know, and at the time, Stratus only had one material. Well, they actually had two. They had ICW, which was a wax material, but that was shortly, that, sh that was short-lived. And then ABS, they had multiple colors, but ABS was really it for them. And so with the few number of 3D printing so uh, hardware out there, the, the vertical markets were pretty limited. It w Ironically, when I first got my start, and I think it was actually a, a huge boost to us, was when SolidWorks came out at 3,800 bucks. Uh, before that, Pro Seat was like 28 grand. You needed a Unix station, which was 40 grand. And, and so really 3D printing was only uh, relegated to the companies that could afford it. So when SolidWorks came out, it, it within a year, we, we were seeing RFQs from companies that were in the consumer consumer electronics industry that would have never thought they could have afforded a 3D print. So it, it, it started becoming kind of a commodity at that time. And people started thinking outside the box immediately, like, how can I use this for a production part? So we were doing one-off production parts for companies. Uh, in fact, one of them was building large balers and they were custom one-off machines. They were like three, $4 million machines and they couldn't afford to do the tooling or justify the tooling for doing a control panel on their machines. So what we would do is we'd end up building these large control panels and sanding them, putting them together. And at the time we were outsourcing the, the finishing, but our, our second, you said that that was your third process. Our second process was polyjet and our third process was SLS. Yeah. Cause you were at that point, you, know, you were tied into Stratasys. So they, they sold you that polyjet next. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, even when I, uh, you know, I departed, semi-retired about six years ago. Um, on FDM, the sweet spot was still, you know, it was large parts, large flat parts for the uh, FDM. Um, yeah. And we would usually, that was different for us with SLS or SLA. We would normally have one big machine surrounded by four little machines. That was kind of the ratio, standard ratio for the size parts you were going to get. So when yeah. uh, the first FDM machines we got, you know, we asked for four small ones and a big one. And then what we found was that what we needed was all big ones. And from yes. then on, we got more and more big machines uh, instead of the, the small ones. And, um, you know, you had mentioned medical and launching into that industry. Um, that, that was also always one of our strong industries. I mean, you know, industries that like... Um, uh, low volume runs would be medical. And we found in aerospace defense stuff as well. But with stereolithography, you know, eight, um, the, uh, the FDM technology is weak in the Z axis, right? But SLA technology is weak in all axes. So <laughs> it, it forced us to get into silicon molding and cast urethanes, and we became very good at it. And we were doing that just for uh, prototypes. We'd make 10 to 15 parts for someone and that mold was spent. But the quality got so good, customers started asking, can we use this for our production parts? And um, yeah. they'd use it for quite a while until they could get uh, some tooling made. And if the volumes were low enough, we'd make parts for them for forever for it. But those were pretty low volumes. But Yeah, you guys were that, really big to do a quick cast, weren't you? Um, Our investment yeah. casting masters. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, we can, it's it's all right. We can use the I guess the brand the trade trade name. It was uh, 
yeah, it was quick cast. And we had uh, we had come up with a uh, better build style than what, what was out there. And we also had, we were the first ones to come up with, you know, the centrifuging. And we had yep. that a secret for three years of centrifuging to get all the resin out of the parts. No one was could figure out why can't solid concepts get all the resin out of the parts. And we to keep it a secret, we literally built a room around the centrifuges so no one would see it. And we put over the door, it said Solvac to try and throw people off. You know, like maybe it uses solvent, vacuums or whatever. And it, it kind of worked. We kept it a secret for three years. And then once everybody figured that stuff out, right, we had a strong grip on that marketplace. And um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I think we were the biggest player in that quick cast market. Yeah, we never we never really delved into the quick cast side of things, and we probably should have uh, because I know it's a, a, a fairly it's a fairly lucrative market, but at the same time, it can be very difficult, can't it? Uh, as far as evacuating all the materials out of it and sealing the part and making sure it's fully sealed and yeah, getting the surface. Well, yeah, we got it down so that was uh, that was very reliable. The whole process was very reliable, so it. Um, uh, but it's not as big an industry as a lot of people would think. I think we had 30% of the industry, right? Yeah. And it was uh, maybe 10 million a year or something. Right? Wow. So yeah, the total industry for quick cast parts, maybe 30, 30 million and, and uh, our total, I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it got bigger than that. Maybe it's 40 or 50, but I don't think it's 100 million. You know, now that you mention it, I, I, I'm curious what your thought on this is. Uh, for, for years, we've been told what the market cap of our industry is and volume of sales and machine, you know, estimates and what they think the market's going to be. What do, you, do you think that they've, they've been off for a long time? Because I, I've never felt like the market was, well, certainly not $21 billion at the time that they were calling it out a few years ago. And I, I just wondered your thoughts on that. Well, you know, in the early days, it was a little easier to hold your thumb up and look at it and go, yeah, I think those estimates are high. And, yeah. and you know, the industry is so big and there's so many different technologies out there, there are hundreds. I, there's just no way to hold your thumb up anymore and tell. I, I, I just don't know. Um, but in any case, I had somebody asking me yesterday about, um, you know, what you do in a down market. And um, and I've been through quite a few and in my career, <laughs> 35 years. And it's like, I always look for something that'll do well in a down market. And that's really yeah. something you've got something that nobody else has. So when it's a down market, right, it's even more important for them to use your product to reduce their costs, to survive the down market. Um, and, you know, you just, uh, uh, you have to have that competitive advantage that you're going to, yeah, people are still going to need to use your product. Yeah, when we when we entered the market, it was actually a down market. Uh, when in '98 is, uh, I believe it was a year before. Do you remember Plyonetics and Prototype Express when oh, they yeah. emerged? Oh, uh, yeah. They were they were a pretty they were a pretty big game back then, and they had went bankrupt the year after I started, which was actually a godsend for us because they were a uh, Chicago land-based bureau. In fact, the th I think other than you guys, cause you're out in California, uh, the three largest service bureaus in the U S I think were in the Chicago land area, not, not excluding Baxter healthcare, which was run by Mike McAvoy at the time. 
I kind of thought we were number three at that time. When those guys merged together, it was like a gut punch. Oh, did it? Was it like, oh man, this they, is gonna be bad. Yeah, when they merged <laughs> together. And then when they closed the doors, yes, we all we all benefited from that. Oh yeah. What it did for in our area was essentially uh from what I had heard, uh it it it, they pretty much padlocked the building and, and there were jobs physically running in the place when, when it shut down. And it, it almost immediately started like four service bureaus in Illinois, you know, because he had these yeah. employees and had customers reaching out to him saying, hey, we've got to get this job done. Can, can you do this for me? So, you know, we, we ended up getting quite a bit of work as a result of that. But our market has always been nationwide. And, and actually, in the early days, it was worldwide. And a lot of that was because of Stratasys kind of co-marketing with us at the time and that was a real big push for us but but the market was you know it was very small i mean we there were made have been a couple hundred service bureaus in the world at the time and not not as many in um, obviously in some of the outlying countries but but in europe and the u.s were pretty much it yeah it was a much smaller market yeah we were almost swimming in a blue ocean back then and yeah. So it was a little um, uh, uh, recession resistant. And so you're saying you kind of got in uh, right at the beginning of a, of a recession. And yes. So, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> we, we did. We got into a, in the beginning of the recession. And, and I, I think that at the time, what really drove a lot of our business were companies redesigning products to be less expensive to produce, you know? So where some of the downtimes in these markets where the markets shift and the economy changes, uh, you know, obviously 9-11 was a big impact. The uh, mortgage crisis was a big impact. What we, you know, what we had with the pandemic was a big impact. What we found uh, kind of propelled our growth were not only the medical and aerospace markets, but these companies that were retooling their products so that they could be less expensive to produce. And at the time, I would say when I first started, maybe 5% of the companies were utilizing 3D, three-dimensional CAD. Uh, they could even utilize 3D printing. So it, even the guys that were doing 3D CAD didn't necessarily mean it was going to land into a 3D print. But that, that expanded greatly in the early 2000s, which is why we ended up bringing PolyJet, because FDM can be kind of clunky. It can, you know, the surface finish isn't as nice as SLA. So when PolyJet came out, oh, my gosh, that was a huge boost for us. So we that, that was our first big push was to, to bring in the MJM process from 3D systems, but also to resell that product. But then we also uh, brought in the PolyJet process those two combined with some urethane casting kind of was our first big growth spurt as a company and when the second uh when the mortgage crisis occurred everyone was no but nobody was really expanding their equipment offerings and at the same time we we decided okay let's let's tackle new markets and and just as you said when times get rough, the, the best thing you could do is start to become innovative and start to think outside the box. How are we going to bring in more customer base? Let's diversify our portfolio of what we offer. And it was at, at the mortgage crisis where we actually quadrupled our, our facility, brought in SLS and then brought in SLA. And when we brought in SLA, it was funny because I had, we'd already been running PolyJet for a number of years and we were running the single material stuff. My, 
my employees were asking for a Conex, which is the two material, the, you know, where you can blend, digitally blend the elastomer with the rigid material. And I took a poll in the office. I said, hey, guys, I said, uh, what do you want, SLA or Conex? And everyone raised their hand and they said Conex. And I said, okay, we're buying SLA. And the <laughs> reason why, and the reason why we did that is we were outsourcing enough of it that I could look at the numbers and I saw that we're we're paying a premium for premium quality parts so that our customers were getting the best parts they could get. And customers were buying from us. So if we brought it in and we were able to re, you know get rid of that upcharge that we we're attaching to it. Our quality was fantastic, and our pricing was was right in line with everyone else. So it was a really uh, it was funny because when we brought it in, my uh, a couple of my guys up front were were thinking, you know, I'm not really sure that's the right path for us. I think we had three machines on order by the end of that year, so it it really did take off for us. It, it's a great process, but but having these multiple tools in a toolbox is is just we're almost growing because of our customers' demands, not really because of what we think the market's doing. Yeah. Have you found that to be the case for you guys or when you were, when you were doing it? Yeah. Um, sorry. I was thinking ahead a little bit on what you said earlier and um, on the recessions. Um, yeah, go ahead. And let me see if this fits what we were just asking, but um, uh what you said was exactly what we learned. I've been through three recessions and it's a tighten your belt, innovate. And we found that there's always a slingshot on the backside. Today's episode is sponsored by Nexa 3D. Here, Michael Curry, Vice President and General Manager for Nexa 3D's desktop business unit, discusses ultra-fast printing on the desktop with the zip, the benefits of open versus closed material systems, and creating sustainable 3D printers and consumables. So people, once they get a technology that is four to, to, to eight times faster, you see this really big behavior shift where people don't go back. You had people that were, would go to Blockbuster or other rental uh, locations and get videos. You know, they might wait, wait a week to get uh, a video in stock. Then along came Netflix and kind of disrupted that with on-demand CDs. And then, of course, Netflix then got disrupted by, say, iTunes from Apple. Uh, then Netflix disrupted again with the idea of, of true streaming. So you don't see people who are streaming now going back and asking for a cheaper overnight download from iTunes. Like that's that's not the market anymore. And so we're seeing the same thing for 3D printers. Once you experience a much faster speed, it makes it very difficult for you to want to go back to a slower speed. Uh, so as an example, we just uh, had a client who just received the zip and he did a side-by-side -side print on another very common SLA desktop printer in the market. Uh, the print that he traditionally would do took him five hours. The one he did on the zip took him 45 minutes. So that's a seven times improvement. And what that means for him is that, you know, he can now print by the hour each day. Uh, whereas before he might do one print in the morning and then kick off an overnight print. So his productivity is going to be dramatically in increased. Or if you're trying to do a bit of a batch production of, of parts, you'll be able to get that many more batches done in a, in a given period of time. So I think that once people see that 
and experience that, it's going to be very difficult to go back to a, a, a slower process. Can you talk about the materials that Zip uses in regards to open versus closed material systems? So the Zip in itself is an open uh, platform for material development. We are really taking a close look at the various material providers in the marketplace, and we're curating and finding what we think are like really good materials. And then we will validate those and in some cases also uh, bring them into our platform and, and resell them. And we, you kind of get our stamp of approval that, hey, we think this is a really good resin. It's superior to its peers in terms of performance or some other aspect, maybe price, uh, value. And we'll make those next and branded. But then our systems are also open. So if you want to go ahead and, and find a resin that you prefer or a color that you need, we also have an open system where you can unlock all the same controls that our internal process team uses to develop resins. I understand that another way the the ZIP has been built is to really consider sustainability. How does the ZIP ecosystem address this? A lot of people complain in the desktop space around the amount of waste that's generated. I think mm. people in the industrial setting, maybe they, 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 they know that waste is a byproduct, but I think at the desktop, when you're using a printer as an individual, it maybe come, might come as a bit of a surprise. So the one thing that, the two things we're doing in terms of our resin management, uh, we are using aluminum uh, bottles uh, that they themselves can be made from recycled material or they can also be recycled themselves after use. We also have the ability to refill them. And then the second one is in our vat system. So we have an interchangeable membrane and and a solid metal vat. So when your membrane uh, exceeds its life or maybe has a puncture or something like that, you can just simply unsnap the membrane and dispose of that and snap a new membrane in. And that that's a really big uh, improvement um, compared to some of the other systems where you're basically throwing away the entire vat. And that's a lot of uh, energy that you're throwing away in that process. Uh, so those are the two things around resin management. And then I guess lastly, the zip itself, uh, we chose to make it an all metal machine. Um, many desktop class machines are made out of plastic. So we're kind of making this sturdy, robust, rigid system. And then our goal in the future is to uh, make modular enhancements to that core. So you, you, don't, you don't end up throwing away your printer just because you want to upgrade its internal components. For more information, visit nexa3d.com. I was just looking at the clock and I was thinking we should maybe transition a little bit uh, from the past to, you know, what, what's going on now. And um, yeah, one thing we haven't, yeah. One thing we hadn't even asked about is like, what's going on at CIDS ideas now and what's going on with Paxis. I've, I've never really, you know, I've, I've walked by it at the trade shows, but it seems like it's a black behind a black curtain. I'm not really sure exactly what it is. That's a good opportunity for you to, to tell me about that as well. Sure, sure. So uh, it, kind of wrapping up on that final recession bit, when when the, when the mortgage crisis occurred, we moved into a new building and started adding equipment. The one thing I realized we were lacking was software. We didn't have an online quote engine and all of our competitors did. So I had, uh, through, a, through a bizarre interaction I was introduced to a guy named Fred Connect, and it was through Mike McAvoy, actually, that I was introduced to him. 
And Fred came over and said, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a computer programmer. I do it part-time on the side. I said, look, I, I want to develop this online quote engine, but I want to do it unlike any other quote engine that anyone else has out there. And part of that was understanding the orientation and how that affects the price, as well as the waste stream of the support materials when the parts are oriented in different directions. I wanted the quote jobs because most quote engines that were developed at the time kind of looked at the XYZ extents of a model and then they arbitrarily threw some support number in there and then they just gave discounts on quantity. We wanted to develop a quote engine that was a lot more comprehensive that could understand these waste streams. So when Fred was developing the software, he was going in back and working with our operators and kind of looking at each individual machine and how they worked and how they functioned and what their speeds were and so forth. And as a result of it, he started hearing my guys in back complain about trap volume in liquid photopolymer technologies. And the best analogy that I'm, I'm sure you already know, understand this, but for the audience would be that if you were to take a ping pong ball and build it in SLA, you have to sink it into the vat, filling the ball up with resin. If you build it in jetted photopolymer, you have to fill and encapsulate the entire part with a support structure. And if you're building in DLP, you're actually pulling the part out of the tray and it creates this suction which could cavitate the part or collect the material into the part. So he had kind of taken it upon himself to, to more or less solve trap volume. So one afternoon, you know, while we were kind of beta testing TrueQuote, our, our quoting engine internally, he had kind of pinged me and said, hey, come into my office. I, I, I really want to share something with you. And I, I walked into his office and he goes, Mike, he goes, I, I think I might've invented a new 3D printing process. And I'm like, okay, well, give me the elevator spiel on this. Let's, what do you got? And so he demonstrated with me uh, this, he, he more or less showed me how we could take and build a, a, a trap volume part without, without it collecting resin inside of it. And as he's describing this technology to me, I thought, wow, we've never, we've, I've never seen anything like this, but I'm surprised because it's one of those aha moments where you look at the, the simplicity of it and, it, and it's there. So what he did when he developed this, uh, when, you know, the first thing I said to him was, okay, stop working on TrueQuote. Let's get it launched on our website. We'll dial it in and, and, and kind of, but your primary goal right now is to develop this technology. So here's my credit card. This is your full-time job. We'll peel the company off. We'll call it Paxis. And we're going to come up with whatever the technology's name is. So we filed our provisional patents, uh, giving us a year to prove out the concept. And, and because he was very concerned about spending our, you know, the, the money that, that we you know, could be invested into the patents, he wanted to make sure that the proof of concept ran. So literally, uh, I think two weeks before we filed our non-provisionals, we were able to run our first part, our, our first layer of the first part off this technology. And we, we've kept it really in the dark, Joe, honestly, because we're, we're small, we're bootstrapped. We didn't know if our patents were going to get granted, which they fortunately did. We're actually just got granted our sixth worldwide patent with five pending right now. And uh, I've kept it in the dark. And I think it's this year, Elizabeth and I have been talking about um, sharing videos of how the technology works. I'd, I'd love to have you out here under an NDA and, and, and show you what we're working on. But one of the aspects of the technology that Fred developed that makes it so unique is that it's very scalable. In fact, uh, when we, our very first design 
was uh, was essentially a 24 inch by 24 inch with a 10 inch Z. And Fred decided, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could make a surfboard? He's like, what's the biggest machine in the world? And I said, ah, I said, in this particular application, if we're going to use liquid photopolymers for now, what, what's the, the machine that Materialize has? Uh, the Mammoth. Hmm. So the Mammoth in Belgium was the benchmark to him expanding the machine so we could build a surfboard in one piece. The, mass, the, uh, the Mammoth has, I think, uh, about a half a million dollars of the resin loaded in it, and the sides are bowing on it. And mm-hmm. so he said, well, I'll expand the machine. So we were able to, over the weekend, make the machine 83 inches longer, or 83 inches oh. long, and build this surfboard utilizing nothing more than $200 worth of resin loaded in the machine. So uh, at, at any given time, obviously, by the time we were done, it was more than $200 worth of resin. I'd come by to see that and, and sign an NDA, of course. <laughs> of course. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd, I'd love to have you because, you know, I, I've, I've never really had a chance to sit down and talk with you. And I know that your roots came from the SLA market. Uh, I think you would really geek out on what Fred has developed here. I mean, we're doing it as a, obviously as a team, but he's really the genius behind this. And I, I, I honestly, I'm afraid that if he were to work at like a large corporation and he brought this idea up to his, you know, boss and middle management, I, I think it would have just fallen on deaf ears. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's really very unique. And I think my first person that I had out to see it was Elizabeth Good, who's uh, now, uh, our marketing and, and VP of of uh, the company. So she she came out under an NDA and saw the process, and she kind of stoically walked around the machine and saw it building. And she's just like, Mike, I think you might have just built SLA. <laughs> yeah, well, I do understand the significance of that because the technologies that have solved the tra- trap volume problem, um, they they have to deal with cavitation. Now, where yeah. people maybe that don't understand what the cavitation word really means, it's like uh, they act like a suction cup. You know, you're you're building them over a, a lens or a flat surface, and uh, as you try and move them as it cures, and you try and move them away from that lens, right? Um, there's the cavitation or a suction cup effect of trying to you know suck the re- resin in between the lens and the and the material. So. I do understand the significance of that. Definitely would like to have a peek behind that curtain. Yeah, it's, it's, I would definitely love to have you out here. In fact, um, like I said, I, I believe that we're uh, going to be running dual materials in the machine by the end of this year. We want to start integrating it into the build parts division of C ideas and really start to maybe be the surf first service bureau in the world to be able to offer parts of very large size and multi-materials that can't be done in any other technology. And, you know, one of the big problems when you look at DLP, because DLP has really driven a lot of material development over the last couple of years. In fact, that's that and patent expirations have really driven that material development. And we're seeing some really exciting materials come out. Uh, As a result of that, you know, having multiple materials in, in, in a system that can do a large flat part and a large thick part, uh, DLP really has a difficult time building, let's say a brick. You know, anyone can build uh, like an Eiffel Tower, 
In fact, that's how most people demonstrate the speed of DLP. But if you were to take and build a physical brick in a DLP machine, it would be extraordinarily slow, but there'd be this heat buildup inside of the part and it, mm -hmm. it, it would create cracking and bubbles. And, and there's a lot of nuances to that technology. So what I'm looking forward to is the fact that we're, we've kind of come out at a time when resin development is starting to really take off. And we're starting to see people, because I would have never imagined 10 years ago that liquid photopolymers could be utilized as end-use parts. Uh, it really wasn't until about five years ago when, when Carbon introduced their two-part resins that we realized, wow, you know, there is a there, there are some material properties that are usable in production. So, uh, you know, you, you've uh, you've been kind enough to mention Paxis. What I, I I would really like to hear about uh, what you're doing over at Evolve because you know going from Stratasys, you're obviously still uh, Evolve is like partly funded by Stratasys, aren't they? Or were they? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Let me let me tell you about that. Well, well, first um, uh, let me maybe take on the the last bit of my story. That after I left Stratasys, you know, I, uh, after I sold to them, I had a three year employment contract, and I served that out, and and a few extra months too to wrap things up. And uh, then I took like a year off, and then uh, you know, I I was. Uh, I had more time to chat with old buddies and things like that. And the next thing you know, I got involved in investing uh, wow. together with some people. And and me and some of the other old cronies from the industry, we started an investment um, uh, a business called uh, 3D Ventures. And yeah. so we were investing. And we've, we've invested in about 15 different companies together over the last few years. Um, but the most exciting one we saw was um, the STEP technology. And yes, it... Uh, it is a spin-off from Stratasys. It, it was um, it was invented and developed in an R and D incubator at Stratasys, and uh, at some point they they decided that um, that they had so many of these kinds of things going on that they could be developed faster and more efficiently if they turned them into subsidiaries and let other people invest in. And so this one was spun off in that way. Stratasys is uh, still has a significant stake in the company and is on the board of directors. And yeah. that's one of the ways I found out about it is my my past. I still have lots of good friends at, from in Stratasys and from Stratasys. So anyways, to get to the technology, what it is, um, well, first step stands for selective thermoplastic electrophotographic uh, process. And that, let me simplify that. If, you, if you've got a, a 2D laser printer sitting on your desk in somewhere in that yeah. room, you take the covers off it, right? You take that, it's basically a laser printer inside. You take that and um, instead of paper sheets going by as it prints, Right, you have a platen that goes back and forth and simulates the speed of a piece of paper going through it, and it's putting each one of those layers on top of each other, and the resolution yeah. is amazing because you're talking about particle sizes smaller than 25 microns, wow. um, and layer thicknesses of you know smaller than 13 microns. 
And the real trick to it, you know, wasn't maybe getting the platen to go the same speed as the, as the paper would be going through and going back and forth and stuff. The real trick is taking thermoplastics and micronizing them to turn them into toner, essentially. Yeah. And uh, the first one they did, which I think was a great choice because it's just a, that's a huge market for it and nothing else can really um, uh, do it is ABS. Okay. Yeah. So until now, ABS, you know, they're FDM parts. They've got a weak, they're weak in the Z axis, but mm -hmm. bigger than that, because they're put out like with a hot glue gun uh, on a nozzle on a gantry system, they're very slow, like we talked yes. about. And, it, and the only way you make them faster is a bigger glue gun, making bigger layers with bigger stair steps. And mm -hmm. uh, so the surface finish on this, if you can picture like is 25 micron uh, range um, is amazing. The feature detail is amazing. And it doesn't build up the stresses even that you build up in injection molding. Um, because of the way that the layers and the stress in them kind of anneals, uh, has time to anneal and stress relieve as you're putting the other layers down on top. That, uh, um, so it doesn't have a lot of built up stress. So it's got accuracy, feature definition, surface finish. It's got all that going for it. But even more than that, so we didn't take a 2D printer, and I say we, this is the guys before me that did this, um, take a 2D printer off someone's desk. It's an industrial color printer from Kodak with yeah. five print engines in it. So right now, what we're selling is a, it's a, a, it's just using two print engines, one for support and one for ABS part material. Now, uh -huh. uh, we've already done more than two print engines at a time, but, but, um, uh, those those aren't released yet, right? But with five engines, I mean, you could have three for each color, one and one for black, right? And a support material, um, yeah. Or to make it go faster, you could put you know two support materials and two part materials and, and make it go fast. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do with all five five engines um, going, but it's an industrial sink uh, uh, print engine behind this thing. I, I saw some parts at Formnext in 2019 off your uh, process. It, it, they were amazing. I mean, they, they truly look like injection molded parts. They were placards, I believe, for uh, vehicles. And, you know, I, I had taken a look at the patents when I, th I think it was uh, somebody had done an article announcing, it was you, you guys announcing your existence more or less a few years ago, and they kind of posted a, a link to the patents and I, I kind of flipped through it. Did, does it move the layer from one location to uh, another location and then assemble the layers separately? Is that how you're going to be able to do color or is it intermixing? Is it going across and-, and No, no just, just, yeah, just like your color printer, it's intermixing and putting them all down together at the same time. You know, so one of the, the distant capabilities of this is going to be um, uh, maybe doing full color or uh, different materials instead of colors. Yeah. Mix elastomeric with rigid uh, thermoplastics. Yeah. Um, and when I say the distant feature, because that's not really a priority. My, my experience has been in the industry. When you provide something that nobody has ever done before, 
it takes so long for people in, to start adopting it and figure out even how to use it that we're yep. not interested in launching the company with those capabilities, but it's there, right? Yeah. And we'll introduce them at the right time and let people start playing with those capabilities and see where they go. But so, um, I mean, you could print... Uh, you can you can print a part uh, with uh, that an overmolded part. Some of it would be elastomeric, some would be rigid. Um, so you can do two different materials. You can do different colors, um, and put them yeah put them wherever you want. Now, are there any size limitations to the technology? Yeah, yeah. Right now, um, uh, one platen size is three hundred millimeters by six hundred millimeters, mm -hmm. and uh, in the Z. Um, we only reliably want to go a couple inches, right? Yeah. Um, but we'll it, it, very quickly we should get to four inches and then to six inches, and um, uh, from there, three hundred millimeter by six hundred millimeter is a pretty big uh, X Y. Uh, so yeah, it's just so slowly expanding the Z. What what's your support matrix what, or the support material? It's similar to FDM. It's a so soluble. It's a soluble soluble material. So um, uh, when it comes to sustainability, we're working, uh, I'm sure everybody who has to use soluble materials is working toward water soluble materials. Um, yep. We already have filtration systems that'll take uh, all the solids out and leave you with the caustic material so that you can use that again, right? Um, uh, but, you know, get. Being able to use tap water dissolved stuff, that's the holy grail. Um, right. Uh, and uh, then you have a material after you've dissolved it out that's not contaminated. And you can then start trying to work to um, uh, reprocess that and turn it back into more support material. Now you've got a process that's fully sustainable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I recently went to IMTS and saw... Uh, the first time in, in my career where there was a reusable support material uh, other than a TJ, right, uh, was uh, was a company called Inkbit. And they had, I think they're like an MIT offspring that created a very similar to MJM or multi-jet modeling, which is a, a tray that slides underneath some jetted heads. They utilize wax as a support. And what I found interesting about that was that they're reusing that support. You know, they're able to melt it down and reuse it, which is, which is really a novel idea for sustainability as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. when, when I looked at the parts that came off of what you guys do, I, I think that you have the same advantage to being uh, similar to that as well as SLS, as well as some of these other company uh, technologies where you can stack the parts, right? So you can do thousands of small connectors and, and placards and pieces of high detail in this small, in this build area of yours, right? Yeah, we could. Um, uh, right now, if they're small pieces stacking them, we've really, it's so fast to swap a machine over. Yeah. That, um, you know, we, we're not really headed that direction right now, but when you mentioned Inkbits, I am familiar with the technology and I do like that technology. Um, yeah. It's a lot like, I view that as it's like the thermoset version of, um, of the step technology, right? Um, yeah. You know, they can deposit different uh, material properties or colors if they wanted either one right down at the voxel level as well. 
uh, but you know their space is uh, going to be two-part thermosets and ours is going to be amorphous thermoplastics and they don't have to be amorphous we've done crystal and uh, semi-crystalline so it's really it's, yeah so it's um yeah we, it it does nylon very well um so it's more thermoplastics have you tried polypropylene by any chance um no but um that should be right in its sweet spot um uh it uh, nylon nylon works uh tpu works and uh, and polypropylene is definitely on our list because that should be right in its sweet spot. Oh, that's great. That's great. Have you parked any machines in the company's facilities yet? Uh, yeah, there's two parked somewhere. They haven't given us permission. So we have one customer with two machines. Um, it's a big name. They won't let us use it yet. Um, and ah. Yeah. Yeah, there is another one sitting here ready to go to uh, Fathom and yep. um, waiting for their tech center to be finished. Um, so for now, we're we're building parts for them uh, in our facility. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be a couple of months before this tech center where they want to put it is going to be done. Yeah. How, how large is the machine? Um, it's pretty big. It's it, it, it's a beast. Um I don't know. I think it's about 15 feet long. Um, and that's because you've got these five print engines all in a row, right? Yeah. But it's set up and it's also set up so you can do two platens, right? We're not selling it yet using the two platens, right? But you could run two platens at the same time that are each 300 by 600 millimeters, right? Wow. So that makes it, that makes it pretty long. So it's a, it's a big machine, but when it comes down to, uh, cost productivity per part, it's, it's going to rock uh, people's worlds. So when we, when we look at our technology, uh, Paxis, we, we call our uh, process wave, which is wave applied voxel. And, uh, similar to, to you, we, we utilize multiple imaging units and that actually allows us to increase our speed exponentially. Uh, we're, where, where the system that we're developing is pretty unique is that it's very small footprint for its buildable area. In fact, uh, the machine that built the full surfboard could roll in and out of a standard doorway. And uh, we kind of are, are looking at the machine and, and the future of how we're kind of tackling it from our perspective of, of, of modular expandability so that somebody could say, hey, look, you know, we want to do a, a three foot by four foot by six foot part. That's, you know, one module. And then we can add modules as we go on. So in theory, our technology could build a 40 or 50 foot long part or parts uh, on a 50, 40 or 50 foot long tray. Uh, that one probably wow. wouldn't fit the standard doorway, but uh, <laughs> a standard big doorway. Yeah. Wow. That, that'd be a game changer. Well, I think that, you know, where it's funny to see where the industry is going now, because, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, the, the adaptation of new technologies is fairly slow, which is ironic because people have been screaming for them for years, right? Uh, there's no shortage of 3D printing manufacturer companies, but what I found is that they're all just me too technologies from, you know, capitalizing off of expired patents. So you, you're seeing some derivatives of FDMs, derivatives of SLA, SLS, powder bed fusion. 
but for the most part, you know, what you guys are working on, what I think we're working on are, are fairly, very, very new. Uh, you know, like with us, our uh, print engine, you guys are utilizing a Kodak engine. We're, we're developing ours ourselves. Uh, there is no current technology that we can retrofit to our system. So everything is ha has to be bespoke. And I think that's part of the reason why we've taken a little bit longer to come to market. Uh, the pandemic didn't help with chip shortages, but the uh, but the reality is we're we're really kind of creating our print engine ourselves internally. So we're not going to be beholden to any particular manufacturer, fortunately. Uh, yeah. You know, in that in that area. Yeah, I think um, uh, the innovation we're talking about is um, a lot of people wonder. Um, they look at uh, the, the new 3D printing technologies come out and are they really disruptive? It seems like it's going so slow, but yeah. I've been in it for 35 years. You've been in it for what? At least 25, I think. And, yeah. And um, what, basically the way this has been working so far has been one application at a time. We champion this technology into use. And it started with prototypes and then it moved into uh, end use production parts. And mm -hmm. then we keep uh, innovating each piece of technology so that we can then expand into other applications. And it might seem slow right now while we're in the middle of it and watching it, but I yeah. guarantee you in a hundred years from now, when you look at the graph, there's a huge inflection point going on right now. Yes. Yeah. Especially in the material development side of things. Uh, I, I think for, you know, when we first started, I remember people would, would call out the technology name, not the material, you know, back in the day it was, Hey, I, I need an FDM part. I need an SLA part, or I need an SLS part. Now people are saying, Hey, I've, I've got this, uh, I've got this flame smoke toxicity rating I need to meet. And, uh, and, uh, I, I need a material that can withstand 280 C. What, what can you guys offer us? And the number of material companies that have been kind of coming out of the woodwork in the last couple of years has been, it's, it's been pretty impressive from, from a standpoint of seeing maybe four or five materials developed in the first 10 years I was in the industry versus hundreds, if not thousands of materials being developed now. And I think materials are really driving the growth of this industry. But you're right. I, I mean, we've, we saw production parts as early as, uh, you know, 98 for companies, but, but now companies are starting to kind of look at this as adopting it to replace traditional manufacturing methods. The only catch that I think we're running into right now is that the material costs and the machine costs are still outside of that window of opportunity for, for normalized production, you know, for mass customization, it's there. We all see it every day and generative design, of course, but, but really, the materials I think are going to be driving the future and we need new technologies to drive those materials because the current technologies limitations are just too, too great. Yeah, agreed. And um, the innovation is still going on to make that happen. So I'm, I mean, with the uh, step technology, for instance, to be able to do the high res, uh, the real engineering plastics that people design parts with. Um, we also, yeah. uh, we also believe that we'll be able to do polycarbonate. So, I mean, those in high resolution, um, uh, accurate, good feature definition, 
Right. And that's just one step in this whole evolution, though, of expanding and addressing more materials. And we'll get we'll, the, all the technologies will continue to get better. They'll get cheaper. And um, yeah, it's we're in the middle of an inflection point.